In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It is important to take care of yourself while listening. Help is available through your local rape crisis center, and you can visit mcasa.org for more information on how to be connected. Hey everybody, it's Meredith, policy advocate for community engagement at the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and this is MCASA On The Go, the official podcast of the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault. MCASA is the federally recognized statewide coalition providing training, technical assistance, and policy advocacy to rape crisis centers and member organizations across the state. MCASA also provides direct legal services to survivors through our Sexual Assault Legal Institute. In this podcast series, we discuss topics including but not limited to sexual violence prevention and response, legal issues surrounding sexual violence, and highlighting the services available for survivors across the state. Earlier in the summer, I spoke with my colleague, Laura, about sexual assault response teams and the different core members of these response teams. Today, Laura and I sit down with Director Raina Delarocco from the Baltimore City Police Department Crime Lab to discuss her work and the Crime Lab's involvement with sexual assault evidence kit testing. All right, well, welcome, Laura and Raina. Um, so excited to sit down and talk to you both today. Um, do you want to start by giving our listeners just a brief intro about yourselves? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Laura Jessick. I was on, I think, a couple episodes ago about sexual assault response teams and sexual assault evidence kits. Um, but just as a reminder, I'm Laura Jessick, Sexual Assault Kit Initiative Victim Notification Project Manager, and I do a lot of work with the sexual assault response teams and sexual assault forensic exam programs in Maryland. I'm Raina Delaracco. I'm the lab director for the Baltimore Police Department, and um, that means I have the analytical and the comparative sides of the lab, and that includes the screening and biology units. They handle the sex offense kits, and I've been with BPD for about 23 years. Awesome. Thank you both again for joining me. I'm excited to dig into our episode. Um, before we talk about the work of the Baltimore City Crime Lab and sexual assault evidence kits or rape kit testing, let's touch base with Laura about how sexual assault response teams are involved in the process. So um, Maryland Sexual Assault Response Teams, or SARTs, are responsible for collaborating and coordinating with each other to ensure that survivors um, of sexual assault receive trauma-informed care and victim-centered services, and also to work together to make sure each case is handled in accordance with um, best practices. And this includes ensuring that all sexual assault evidence kits or rape kits that are eligible for testing are submitted and sent to the crime lab for testing and that's where Raina comes in. So it's all about working to support the survivor and hold offenders accountable, right? Exactly. Uh, and I will say that I think Raina will have some excellent excellent insight into what happens at the crime lab once they receive a kit for testing. But it should be noted that there are several crime labs in the state that serve Maryland law enforcement agencies and uh, Raina's crime lab, um, the Baltimore City Crime Lab, addresses all of the Baltimore City cases. Is that I'm correct on that, right, Raina? Yeah, and we have some MOUs with some of the universities in, in Baltimore City, too. So if anything happens on those campuses that they can't handle, we wind up getting those, too. Awesome. That's really good to know. Um, so, Raina, could you tell us a little bit more about how Baltimore City Crime Lab handles each kit that's sent for testing and how the lab can address state efforts on sexual assault evidence kit reform? 
So we've been pretty aggressive, I think, in how we've handled sex offense kits over the past decade or more. Um, a lot of the stuff that's being talked about now is, you know, new is stuff that we've been doing for a really long time. Um, in 2006, we got a lot of grant money and we started sending stuff out to um, a private lab. And that lab, we wound up doing, I think we wound up doing like two or 3,000 cases because that was, you know, now everybody's doing this, like, how many untested kits do you have in your evidence control units? We did that already a long, long time ago. So for the way we normally handle it now is the, um, and things have changed over, over the years. When we first did that project, we were sort of just finding the stuff in EC and creating a list for the lab and then sending things out. Um, we definitely are more collaborative with our sex offense unit now where they uh, will get the kit in and then they'll send it to us. And we're doing something that's um, wide screening. So we're doing 100% testing, essentially. That's what the um, statute kind of wants us to all do. We're already there. So anything that comes in, we do a wide screen on it. And then if there's male DNA, it'll go on to the full testing. If there's not, then they'll go back and they'll look to see if there's other evidence to go to. And then if that winds up being um, fruitless, then we just report it out. So I think we're like a little more um, ahead of the curve with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's it's been in the SWIG Dam recommendations and also in like the AG committees that this be like the best way to approach these kits. And so we are really proud to be the ones that are going first, I think. And, um, you know, like any lab, we do have backlogs, but I think, you know, we're in a really good place comparatively nationwide. I would say that we rank pretty high in terms of what our turnaround time is and, and uh, the number of backlog kits we have. Awesome. No, that's so wonderful to hear. Um, sounds like y'all are doing some really, really great work out in the city. Um, I want to talk about the state's recent expansion of the time frame for sexual assault forensic exams, um, originally from five days post-assault to 15 days due to new and emerging research on DNA collection and uh, scientific advancements for testing. So Laura, from an advocacy perspective, can you kind of tell us what that means? Well, without going into um, all the data and research that is out there um, too much, um, I will just say there's been, as you said, emerging research that demonstrated demonstrated the ability to obtain offender DNA beyond the time frame that was originally understood, which was five days after an assault. Um, so in fact, some research suggests DNA can be found up to two weeks or longer after an assault. And in recognition of that research and with the understanding that Scientific advancements will continue to expand and DNA testing um, capabilities will continue expand to expand. Maryland now allows survivors of sexual assault to receive a sexual assault forensic exam up to 15 days after the assault. Um, this allows survivors time to handle their own immediate needs, whether that's safety or just processing the trauma that they've um, just experienced. Um, and to find the support that they need before they go and get an exam um, while still ensure. So we just want to ensure they have time to do everything that they need to handle, but still have time to get the medical forensic care and evidence collection services that are available. And so, Raina, can you give us a little bit of insight on what this means for the crime lab? Are you guys seeing more kits being submitted for testing? We aren't seeing an increase, um, but we don't um, really have anything really to do anymore with the time frame because we're doing 100% testing. So we don't really take the scenario into consideration like we may have done in the past for that, that five-day window. 
with the Y screen, it lets us do something really quick and fast. So we can, so it's faster for us just to run it all and get it all done rather than getting into any of the details about the time frame and, you know, are we at the edge of the time frame? Are we at the beginning of the time frame? That stuff, it really, with this new testing with the Y screen, it, it's kind of irrelevant. So um, I'm not sure if the number of kits that we will see will increase over time as people are more aware of this, but right now we haven't seen um, like an uptick as a result of that particular thing. So I just was going to ask, Rena, you've said it a couple times, and this is something that I've gotten questions about before. When you say Y-screening, oh, yeah. can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, prior to doing Y-screen, typically what would happen is we do what you would see as like traditional serology. Like if you see um, like a screening or serology test, it would be they would get the kits in, they would do cuttings, they would see if they could find sperm, they would look for saliva, they would do all this preliminary um, screening where they'd be looking for body fluids. And then if that yielded something, then they'd move it on to DNA. Um, the statute wants us to do DNA testing on everything. So why STR analysis is DNA testing. It doesn't, we don't do any of the screening in the beginning where we're looking for those like body fluids. Initially, we're just going straight to DNA. So Y screen is looking for male DNA. So when it's Y, it's like the letter Y. So not like Y screen, like question mark. <laughs> um, so we're looking for the Y chromosome, right? So we're looking to see if we can find male DNA. And that's like, if there's a Y chromosome there, there's going to be male DNA there. So it lets us know like, hey, this sample has male DNA on it. So then you want to take it to the next step, which is like the traditional SDR analysis that you would typically see after the screening stages. So when we are doing this, we're just cutting everything that we have, right? So anything that's in the kit, um, we, we avoid duplication. So like if somebody has dental floss in there, but they also have oral swabs, we'll just do the oral swabs. But, you know, we do go back if we don't find anything, right? So like we're just looking at all the stuff. We just cut it and run it, see if we get a white. And then if we do, then we take it to the traditional DNA testing. Okay, so that makes sense. You're just kind of looking for moving the or taking this process a step ahead and it moves a little bit faster if you find that Y chromosome, meaning a male uh, DNA is present. Yep. Okay. yep, and it eliminates all of that. You know, we have a lot of reporting requirements in our accreditation. And if we, you know, t take out that one beginning stage of the screening, like, that cuts out um, tech reviewing, admin reviewing, because they have to issue a report, right? So that whole step not being there saves us so much time and getting us faster to running traditional STR analysis. And the widescreen, just a little sidebar, the widescreen is actually much better than the screening because it's super sensitive, right? Like you can find the male DNA in the presence of like an overwhelming amount of female DNA. So where a screening step might have missed like the one sperm that's there, the widescreen steps will catch that. So it's not only faster, but it's also more sensitive and lets us get to more of those kits that might be good for traditional STR testing. Got it. That makes sense. Good to know. Thank you. Yeah. So it sounds like that despite emerging research, there's still a lot of questions on which evidence should be collected and how viable it may be, um, especially with how, you know, um, like Raina, you just mentioned, we have all of these different types of screenings. So what evidence should be collected? How viable is it? Um, does all of that sound correct to you, Laura? Yeah, so when the 15-day time frame um, came into play, there was a lot of questions about what type of swabs should be taken and what type of swabs shouldn't be taken. Um, and, um, you know, if it's, if it's 
viable or if it's going to be essential when the lab gets it. And so I really appreciate what Raina just said, because to me, what that's saying is it doesn't matter how small of amount of sperm might be present, this new testing, why testing is going to catch that. So I think that's actually wonderful to know and further supports this 15 day expansion. Um, and I just want to say, like, from an advocacy perspective, um, that our um, we should all remember when we're seeing a patient, a forensic nurse examiner has the ability to still use professional discretion in terms of what evidence is collected based on their training and their experience. Maryland has just simply recognized this emerging research and the possibility of improved testing capabilities in the future. And like Raina said, it seems like we're already getting there with those improved testing capabilities. Um, so I, sh um, so there shouldn't be any really restrictions in terms of what is collected and what isn't collected. And we would rather just let the lab do their job and um, take a look at what's in the kit and, and see what's available to them. Going back to kit testing, um, Raina, once the lab has initiated testing and the forensic scientists are collaborating with law enforcement, what's the next step? Um, I'm guessing it's not like the process we see on TV or SVU. Um, I mean, the results can't simply be um, obtained within minutes or hours or tell us what that process is like. Yeah. So we do, we do collaborate with our internal partners. Um, we do, you know, only in the beginning, right? So we only want to know when they're giving us the kits. And then beyond that, it's, it's based on scientific decision-making. It's, there's not, you know, like this interaction between the detectives and the, um, the scientists, because we actually really want to avoid that. Um, we're doing something here where we're, we have the biology unit has always had a casework manager and that person is tasked with sort of um, sequentially unveiling information. So we, we try to keep the context of the case out as much as possible. We just want to do like the science. So we do collaborate, but it's really only in the beginning and then at the end. So after the testing happens, they have to issue a report. And I mentioned a little bit ago about how we have accreditation and we have all these steps that we have to do. So if we get to the point where we're going to issue a report that, like, for example, that we're going to have something that goes into CODIS or it does have a suspect associated with it. And even if it's like a negative report, we still have to do a whole lot of checking. We have a tech review. We have an admin review. Um, and then that has to go to the detective who submitted the request. And then sometimes it goes to court. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, we're not involved after we send it to the detective. We do help them a little bit. We try to reach out and do some trainings, try to explain to them, you know, what does it mean that you have a YSTR profile, but you didn't get an STR profile? Like, what does a Y screen do for you? Like, if there's other evidence, what do you do next? So we, we try to interact with them on those two sides, you know, like bookended with our work. And then if we do get called to court, um, that usually doesn't really happen that often. I mean, we do go occasionally. I mean, with COVID, obviously, we haven't gone in a really long time, but the courts are opening up and we're starting to go a little bit more. But we do, we'll go to testify and we'll talk about what the reports mean and kind of do that education part again of like what all this means and, you know, what are the trends? Are we following best practices? What our accreditation is like? So there's more after the testing. There's actually probably more admin stuff that goes on. Um, instead of just the testing, you know, testing is just one little part of the whole lab's work. And those other things that are part of the admin are really, really important because, you know, that we can have really great science. We can have like the coolest instruments and the most up-to-date protocols. But if we don't do all that other stuff and we don't do that other stuff well, then it's not usable, right? So there's some, you know, this idea of like, why do we have accreditation? And like, why do we have to follow all these rules? And like, you know, why are we writing all this stuff down? And it's, it's hindering us from being faster. Well, you know, that might be true. It does slow us down a little bit but it does make us really good, right? So without that stuff, everything that we do with really cool instruments and up-to-date protocols and like following best practices doesn't mean anything. 
So there's like a whole lot more than just the testing. Yeah, it seems that there's so much more that goes into it than, you know, we see on TV or in the media. Um, I feel like I watch SVU and it's like, here's the hair sample. And then 20 minutes later, the technician comes back and they're like, it's this person. And it's like, I don't think it works that way. Um, But it makes for great TV. I would say would be somewhere around eight to 12 weeks, all told, just like through that whole thing. So like from the point that we get it. To the point that we are issuing a report and we're done all of that stuff, it's it's somewhere between eight to twelve weeks, and that's actually really good. I mean, if you obviously, I'd like it to be faster, but you know, there's a resource issue, obviously, also in the city to consider. But that's pretty darn good, honestly, in terms of turnaround times. I mean, I think that a couple of years ago, um, Delegate Hedelman wanted there to be a hundred and fifty day mandatory turnaround time for for sex offense kits, and we were like, yeah. Let's do that. Like we're within that window and we're comfortable in that window. If we can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> and you're, I would say you're, you're right, Raina. Like, um, just, well, I don't know if you've said this, but just hearing you talk like eight to 12 weeks, I know that's like on the good end of things and fast, but from the advocacy perspective, like I just, I think TV and media have really skewed things where people are under the impression that you'll, we'll be able to tell them who assaulted them within like yeah. a week or days. Um, oh, that's just like skewed perception. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like, no, that's as soon as CSI came out, that, like forensic scientists across the nation were like, the juries don't understand why it's taking so long. They have these really high expectations because, you know, they see on TV, they're like, like you said, the hair goes into the machine and then the machine pops out a person's picture and there they are and it's done. It's, you know, that's, that's not reality. And, you know, even with that being not reality, eight to 12 weeks is a little, t- is long, right? Like we want it. We want, we feel the same way. We want answers right away. You know, we like to be able to give answers either way, however way they go immediately. But Again, it's one of those things where you just have to sort of like push on that, you know, as, as much as you can so that you can do really good work, but also be as fast as you can. And so that we can get these answers out there as soon as possible. But not CSI fast. One day will never, ever happen. <laughs> well, Raina, we've really appreciated talking to you and getting some insight into the crime lab process. It's all super interesting to me, especially as someone who's not as involved with the sexual assault response teams like Laura is. But I do want to ask just one more thing before we wrap up. Last episode, um, Laura touched on the sexual assault kit initiative or the testing of previously untested kits in Maryland. How is your lab involved with this process? Are you going to be revisiting former Baltimore City cases? So uh, we've been a part of the AG's committee for a really long time. We were there initially when this whole thing kind of started with the sex offense kits and the untested kits. And the untested kits that we had were um, those that were deemed to be unfounded. And unfounded is um, a determination not made by us, right? So the lab is not involved in that process. Um, and we have never destroyed a sex offense kit. So the lab, um, ha- you know, the lab, the department has retained all of the sex offense kits, including those that are unfounded for the past 35 years. So the number that we had was, you know, a, a 35 year collection. But that being said, we definitely do go back and revisit. Technologies change, you know, the way um, we can do our work change. There might be additional resources, you know, there could be like databases that um, our internal partners might be able to access that they might decide, hey, you know what, I actually want to do this kit now. And they've done three rounds of reviews in, um, in our, with our internal partners in the sex offense unit. And they are giving us kits to do now that like might meet the testing requirements for this Y screening. And so we're approaching those. And if something else changes, if we get another new technology or something new comes along, new sensitive kits or new instruments, we're definitely opening, open to 
revisiting things if it's appropriate scientifically, you know, and if they are going to have it be an open case, because that's really important. If a case is the reason why the unfounded seem like they're not being tested is because if something is not deemed to be a crime and that, again, is not a loud decision, then we cannot put it into the CODIS databases. So if we can't access the CODIS databases, particularly for cold cases, the DNA that we would come up with wouldn't go anywhere. We would just have this male profile that we couldn't do anything with. And so that's why, you know, that unfounded issue feels like there's a lot, but there are also all these like, you know, requirements that go into why we may or may not have tested something just in the lab, aside from how they determine whether or not something is unfounded, which is, again, not the lab's responsibility. But yeah, we would, we're, we're definitely like, we'll go back if somebody thinks it's an open case and we have something that we think we can do. Heck yeah, we'll go back. Awesome. No, that's so wonderful to hear. Um, And I want to thank you both today for joining me and having a great discussion on this issue. Laura, is there anything you want to say to the listeners? No, I would just say it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of science that goes behind it that is all over our heads. But, you know, it might be worth coming back with and having another conversation with Raina and her team to hear a little bit more about all of that. Um, But thanks so much for all that background information and the just getting a view from the lab perspective. We appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. And if you ever want to chat about and really get into the science of it, which is not that hard, by the way, happy to have anybody sit and chat mm-hmm. with you. And thank you for giving us an opportunity because we're really proud of what we've done here at BPD. I don't think a lot of people know about the good stuff that happens here. So having this opportunity is really great. So I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for listening to MCASA on the go. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. In upcoming episodes of our Sexual Assault Response Team series, I'll sit down with other core members across the state, including forensic nurse examiners, law enforcement officers, and representatives from the state's attorney's office. Please be sure to subscribe for future episode updates and follow us on Facebook, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at MCASA.org. Thanks again for listening.